0: Hey folks, Dave Harvey here, and I want to welcome you again to the Am I Called podcast. Uh, returning to help me today is the lead pastor of Summit Church, Jamin, right down here in Southwest Florida. Jamin is the lead pastor of of Summit, which I just said. And <laughs> Jamin, yep. it's great to have you back.
1: It's great to be back. Thanks, Dave.
0: So before we get into today's guest, um, this is the big news for this week. The the free calling assessment that we have on the Called site has just been translated into Spanish, and so it's available at uh, auto-evaluacion. <laughs> and I apologize <laughs> if I just brutalized or destroyed the Spanish pronunciation there, but that's the best I can do. Uh, you know what? We will put it. <laughs> we will put it with the podcast, and uh, you can see the link when you look at the podcast, and we'll get it up there for you. Uh, but, and, and by the way, Am I Called also has articles in Spanish if that's of service to you as well. Anyway, far more important than any of that is, is that today joining us is Bland Mason. Bland is a church planner from Boston who started a church in 2010 named City on a Hill. Uh, Bland is married to Teresa with three children and holds both an MDiv and a PhD, and and Bland also serves as a baseball chaplain. And uh, so maybe we'll hear about that a little bit for the Boston Red Sox. So Bland, g- give us some um, biographies, born and raised where? Sure, um, I was actually born
2: in the great nation of Texas. Um, my, okay. my parents immigrated to the United States when I was two. And wow. so I, I came with them, uh, grew up in Southeast Virginia near Norfolk, hampton that area what and, part of texas were you born in uh, san antonio okay so yeah i remember it well from my uh, first two years of life there um and is it just but, like
1: ingrained in you when you're born that that texas is like in your mind yes, better it's yes just there.
2: i, I had a uh, true story I had a, a texas flag hanging, hanging on my wall till i was wow. 18 years old so i was very proud of that and um yeah so grew up southeast virginia Went to college in North Carolina and then uh, moved up to the Louisville area and did an MDiv and PhD, pastored a couple of churches there. One was a sort of a seminary church during my MDiv. They'd always had seminary students. And then my PhD program, I pastored basically at what I call just a county seat Baptist church just outside of Louisville uh, for nine years and before moving to Boston.
0: One of the things we like to do on the podcast, plan is just to hear the story of how God called men into ministry or called them to preach. So why don't you relate a little bit about what was going on at that point?
2: Sure. Um, So I was an out-of-control sort of teenager, um, not just sort of the normal drugs and alcohol partying, but uh, academically. Uh, So I, I failed seven classes in high school, barely passed a bunch of other ones, and actually flunked my senior English class, found out five days before graduation, Uh, So I did not graduate um, on time and uh, got into this small college in North Carolina, basically, that was accepting anyone with a pulse. Uh, So I qualified for that. So I went to college, and what God did my freshman year was put me in the room with a a strong uh, believer who had actually, despite the fact that I had grown up in a Christian home, I was rebelling against that he had so not you, grown up in a Christian home
0: sh- sharing a dorm room or? Yep, okay. yep sharing a dorm yeah. room
2: put me in the dorm with uh this guy and he had become a Christian his junior year in high school and um no, not a Christian family and all that but his faith was so real and so um so powerful just seeing him kneel every night next to his bed and pray uh, read his bible I just saw something in him that was like that's what I'm supposed to have like having grown up in a Christian family so um, God radically changed my, my life my freshman year in college. And it um, turns out I like to study when Jesus is in me. Um, and so I was ahead on credit hours. It was the middle of my sophomore year, and I could have either graduated in three years or double majored. And I wow. loved college a bit much. Uh, so I. It's uh, quite a
0: transformation.
2: Was, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I was a business major. And so I added religion in the middle of my sophomore year as a second major and um, it was through that just trying to figure out what that might mean i just was interested in it Um, but it was around my junior year that um, god began to lay on my heart a real interest in ministry and the idea of actually serving vocationally Um, and so um, yeah it was i guess by the time i finished my junior year i had committed that i was going to go to seminary after i finished um, and just see where god led with that so it was a gradual it was a gradual thing for me it was not a, a road to Damascus experience of you know calling but God just very gently and very consistently confirmed that that direction for
0: my life was it through studying that the the burden to preach kind of took flight or do, do you remember that kind of taking taking focus at all or sharpening it all within your soul
2: yeah it, it I think so it was both sort of um, learning I remember cutting my teeth on uh you know, like the John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus, um, just loved that book, just the the depth of it, and um, it, it began to, I wanted to to share that, I wanted the, 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 the truth of the gospel began to burn in me more, and when I heard good preaching, it made me want to go preach. Um, and so it had this, like, cumulative effect of the more I heard good preachers, the more I read good books that inspired me, the more I wanted an outlet and Wanted to be able to share that and, and however God, you know, laid on me. And so, um, yeah, it was a while before I actually, I guess I actually started pra- pastoring when I was 23, which should have been against the law. But, um, it that's was a pretty small, small seminary church that had for 90 years had MDiv students at Southern, um, a little town of Bethlehem, Kentucky. Okay. Um, 600 people. And that's when I started preaching weekly and, Thank God that was before the internet yeah. um, and before even digital recordings. So there are <laughs> yeah. no records of those except a
0: few physical copies that I have of, uh, of the notes. Jamin, how, how did you and Bland meet? Yeah,
1: so Bland and I met actually as a church. We started partnering with Bland and with City on a Hill, really as a result of some folks on our team who had heard about what God was doing up in Boston specifically through bland and his team at city on a hill and so we went up and before partnering with we just went and took a trip to join you guys in boston just to see what the lord was doing and we were overwhelmed just as we walked the streets and as we got to know folks that bland was ministering to and ministering with other church plants that they were raising up and sending out uh, really in the infancy years of their own church plant uh, we left there thinking this is the type of work that we want to be involved in. We want to. We may not get to live in Boston ourselves, but we want an extension of ourselves to be up in Boston through what the Lord's doing at City on a Hill, and it's been a really rich partnership for us. We've learned a lot from from Bland and his team.
0: So, Jamie, we just finished up a a preaching discussion team where we get together once a week to talk about the the text for Sunday, and mm-hmm. and the group is around the table, and we're talking about. Uh, how we might approach it, and at the end of that meeting, Bland was visiting. At the end of that meeting, we prayed for him, and Orlando prayed specifically mm-hmm. about um, the work that God has done in Bland's heart regarding the kingdom and how much he appreciated that God had made the kingdom big and not just his local church big, Yeah. and so h- how did you experience that in traveling up there, and then, Bland, I want to kick it over to you. How did God cultivate that passion in your life?
1: Yeah, One, of, I mean one of the things that we noticed early on was that it seemed like Bland and his team, so I'm talking about Fletcher and Mike and the other folks who work with Bland up at City on a Hill, it seemed like they had a vision not just for their their smaller geography of Brookline and the areas around that, but wanted to saturate Boston and the Boston area with the gospel and knew that, that church planting was a primary vehicle to do that. And so On that first trip up there, I believe we met two or three other planters that you were working with, Mm -hmm. uh, and they were totally different types of churches, uh, like really different types of churches that uh, really it takes a kingdom mindset to have that type of a relationship work, to be able to look at God's activity in the lives of other people and say, we believe the Spirit of God is active in you in such a way where he's giving you a vision for that geography, and it may not look exactly like what we're doing, but it has the same DNA, same uh, theological uh, vision, and, and things like that. And so, we're going to trust that the Spirit is going to work in you in that context, and we're going to get behind it as much as we can without our name having to be on anything. And mm. that was really impressive to us. That's great.
0: Mm. So, Bland, yeah, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Where did that come from?
1: Um,
2: well, i when I moved to Boston, um, at least the SBC it had a ninety percent failure rate in church planting from ninety eight to two thousand and eight, um, and so um, I knew two things. One is it was going to be God's grace if I was able to plant a church that was healthy and and actually survived. But secondly, I just I had a vision to be uh, not just plant a church, but plant a church that planted churches, and um, you know as much as I want to. Uh, to say that, man, when I went up there, I was just really kingdom-minded, and it was all about God's name and all about Jesus' name in the city. Um, you know, I had a lot of ego wrapped up in it as well, and I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges for a lot of church planters is sort of parse out their own, okay, what, what part of this is, is my need for validation or my idea of success? And um, fortunately, God did uh, a, uh, what seemed like a real tragedy in my life in the moment, um, but used it in an incredible way was uh, in October 2009, we had just started our Sunday night core group meetings. Uh, we were gathering for worship on Sunday nights in a Jewish synagogue um, and uh, had a couple of community groups in the area. And I went to bed on a Tuesday night, healthy, no, no heart, no uh, cond- problems. And um, I went to bed that night, and about an hour after I went to sleep, I had a, a sudden cardiac arrest. Where my heart stopped, and um, yeah, it's kind of a crazy, crazy story. Fortunately, my my wife woke when up. Happens? I was asleep, yeah, and uh, they call it the the widowmaker because like ninety percent of the time the spouse will wake up the next morning, and you know they're gone. Their other their spouse is gone, and so uh, my wife fortunately woke up because I started seizing. Uh, she gave me got me on the floor, gave me CPR. Um, for around eight minutes, um, until a police officer came in, he hit me with a defibrillator. A couple of minutes later, an ambulance came in, they hit me again. Um, long story short, I spent nine days at Tufts Medical Center, and uh, um, have no. The amazing things are, I had no uh, no lasting damage from the event itself, not to my heart, and uh, I tell people I had no more brain damage afterwards than I had before. <laughs> Um, and so I, I made a full recovery, um, and they never actually found out what, what caused it. Um, so it's a really kind of a crazy situation, still ongoing conversation with my cardiologist about this. Um, but, uh, but they gave me a, a defibrillator is in my chest right now that that's there just in case it ever happens against my sort of personal reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, but what God did in that incident was, uh, I woke up with an incredible piece in the hospital. Um, but just as anyone would, you begin to reflect on what you're doing with your life. And I, I, really felt like I was where God wanted me to be and I was doing what he wanted me to do. But I began to realize that I am not indispensable to the kingdom. Uh, there's only one who is indispensable to the kingdom. Uh, and he is the king. And, uh, and so I realized I get to be, a I he's saying, I, I want you to, to come be a part of this. Um, but you're going to have to, some of your ego is going to have to die um and so i'm actually grateful for the whole event and my 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 wife is as well that uh that god sort of purged some certainly not all Mm -hmm. but some of that out of me that allowed me to be able to be generous with people to want to see um to give resources to our church planters you know honestly as much as i might have said outside like oh you know we want to send these people out i would have been you know, part of me on the inside would have been, so well, I'm downsizing my church. Like, you know, it, it would have been sort of um, an internal battle at least, but I, I felt that that was not anywhere as bad as it would have been if God had not taken me through that
0: experience um, in my life. Bland, talk to the um, the church planners that are listening, maybe the young pastors. Um, what is it that you think feeds the, those delusions of indispensability in a pastor who's a part of a— of a successful thing, at least success in the way that the culture would define success.
2: I you know, I think it's a sinful, it's, it's pride. It's the, the sinful part of us that, um, that looks for validation from what's around us or who's around us. And, uh, you know, and I think the celebrity pastor culture has fed that we, we see somebody and we go, Oh, I'd love to have a following like him, or I'd love to be able to preach like him at conferences and all of that. Um, and I think, you know that uh, i think it's changing slowly um I, th- I see more millennial pastors who are willing to just just go no i want to go grind it out hard somewhere you know may never see more than 100 people on sunday but i want to see people transform with the gospel i want to see a neighborhood impacted and you know justice happen and you know that kind of thing so it's a i think there's a healthy change but at least for my generation the celebrity pastor was was part of that and then uh just my personal drive i'm a I'm an eight on the enneagram, so I tend to tend to like you know define success out there, and then want to lead everybody towards that. And if that's not healthy, and it's based on my own pride, uh, then somewhere along the way, um, you know, we're going to be in trouble. So um, I would say for young pastors to to really um, recognize that in themselves, whatever aspirations you may have, we baptize them often in the name of Jesus, and go, oh, I want to see, you know. 200 people saved through my church next year. Well, that's good. But would you be okay with, G- with Jesus saving 200 people through the three or four churches around you as well? Mm-hmm, or would good. that just have to be through your church? Um, and so I think there's just ways that we need to begin to, the earlier in ministry, I think uh, a pastor can recognize that the better. I didn't have anyone coaching me uh, when I was 23, 24 years old, um, but certainly would have, benefited from that someone who who was older than me looking at me and saying are you getting your ego caught up in this mm-hmm. um, so
0: survive the widow maker mm. <laughs> that's the deal that's what yeah. took Jack in and this is us right that isn't that the
1: that's uh, a spoiler. Uh, you should have said spoiler alert. I don't, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. Well, we're gonna have to you can't exempt throw that, that out, out there. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it was exactly the the Widowmaker, but yeah. it was something. It, it, I Remember uh, them saying something about that? It was
0: the heart. We're gonna have to figure out what to do with that. Oh,
1: Gosh, we might have to edit that out. Yeah, <laughs> caveat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Bland, um, I know that that you uh, are are a chaplain with the Red Sox, and I know that there's a lot about that that you that you can't even talk about and it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about uh but would asking you like how did that door open be within the parameters of what you're able to talk about sure yeah uh
2: so I moved up to Boston the fall of 2008 actually November 1 of 2008 and um (laughs) in retrospect a terrible time because the economy had tanked Uh, most churches and were individuals were not Thinking about supporting church planters, um, and then uh, November one is the beginning of daylight. Oh, it was the beginning of daylight savings time in Boston during that time, so it was then dark at four thirty, mm. uh, pitch dark, uh, <laughs> and just in time for winter. So it's terrible timing, except for the fact that God had a plan in it. That ten days after I landed, um, I get a phone call from a friend uh, who's pastoring a church planter up on the North Shore of Boston, and. He had been reached out to by Baseball Chapel, which is a national ministry that places chaplains in all the major minor league teams in the country. And uh, they had reached out to him because the previous Red Sox chaplain had stepped down and uh, they were looking for some candidates. And he couldn't apply, but they asked him, uh, they said, you know, do you know anybody? And he threw my name out there, um, which is rather ironic for multiple reasons. Uh, One of being that I was not a baseball fan, uh, did not watch baseball, um, could not have named more than two guys on the team yeah. to save my life and had just landed in Boston. So, um, it was, it was ironic, but sure enough, just like a couple hours later, I'm on the phone with the guy with baseball chapel and he's talking to me and I'm almost like trying to talk him out of this. Cause I, I think I, I didn't want him to have ideas about me that weren't true. Um, but he said, no, let's talk about your experience preaching and teaching and discipling men. And, um, so uh, then through a series of interviews about six weeks, it was about four weeks later, so six weeks after moving to Boston, I get a phone call from him um, offering the, the position, do I, do what I'd like to take it. So I hadn't even planted a church, hadn't done anything, but now I'm pastor to the largest cult in the city. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, it's, been a, it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, our church is not far from Fenway, so it works really, really well
1: yeah it, it's remarkable not, not only that opportunity, but as I think about Boston itself uh, with the different universities and colleges, just the unique dynamic of of the culture there of people who are entrenched in Boston, like Boston culture, Red Sox, Irish, right. probably Irish Catholic and yep. a variety of things, and then the highly educated, um, parts of Boston as well. Just what's the dynamic of ministering in a context like that? And then specifically even looking at your church, the percentage of PhDs at your church is really unheard of. I mean, it's what's the percentage of PhDs at your church?
2: Either completed or working on it's probably 40, maybe 50%. Okay, it's so, so really it's half,
1: really super yeah. high. Yeah. So what's what's the dynamic of ministering in a context like that? And what does it take is it a certain type of person that that uh, God can use there or just talk about that?
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, so so where we landed in North Brookline uh, is is more of a transient type of area. I mean, there's young professionals that try to put down roots there because of the school system and the access to downtown. Um, but we've we've really tapped into more of that young, educated, young professional and or grad student type of um people. Uh, so our, our average age is probably 27 um, in the church. And, uh, you know, what's what's interesting is you, you would tend to think, well, we need to, you know, intellectualize the gospel really highly, and it needs to, you know, contextualize it. The truth is they really just want good, solid biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yes, you have to think about application, um, because the city, is, as Keller talks about, the city's full of idols. And, and so you look across your congregation on Sunday, and there's all kinds of idols there um, of the city mm-hmm. that they're all you know tempted to, to trust in, and so um, I, we don't have that huge Irish Catholic population. Actually, in Brookline, the, the real established population is Jewish. Okay. Um, it's about thirty-eight percent Jewish, in the community, um, and so that's the the much slower. We we know that's a long term sort of being there, earning credibility, which we God's allowed us to be able to do slowly build relationships. Um, and so we've seen a few people, um, you know, come to faith from that, from that context, but mostly it's more of the, um, more of the grad student, young professional population that we've seen uh, impacted with the gospel, but it's extremely diverse. So our church is 58% white, 42%, uh, probably half of that's Asian, maybe a little over half, but then we have Africans, we have African Americans, we have Latino people. Um, yeah, canadians uh
0: all types <laughs> how, how do you think uh preaching and pastoring an educated congregation like that how does that change your preaching how does that change how you attempt to reach them um i
2: think you know for me i'm always uh you know it's an old puritan way of preaching where you're trying to think through the questions that that they have, um, and so as you're as you're sharing the text, as you're preaching the text, realizing that they may very well be struggling—at least some of them are struggling—to believe what you're saying, or um, to you know to grow in their faith in it. And of course, there's there's non-Christians every week who are there who are checking out Christianity, and so um, it's not it's not apologetics preaching because I, th- I don't I don't think that's really a way to to feed a church long term, but it's realizing. At points in the sermon, God will give you an opportunity if you're if you're thinking about it to go. Okay, this is a great point that somebody's not going to believe what I just said. This scripture says because it's so disconnected from reality for them that I need to help draw the line from where they are to what what this text is saying. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's uh, you know, it's reminding people, for example, in our context of idols that you know ultimately. These people often have won so many awards, reached so many milestones in life, valedictorian of their class, or got into whatever you know school, you know, earned whatever uh, internship. And I said, you know, has any of that ever lasted in your life? Are you as excited today about getting into your college as you were, you know, ten years ago when you got accepted? Probably not. Why is that? because we weren't meant to live off being, to have, find our ultimate satisfaction and joy in those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I try to, it's that type of that of uh, a point or idea in preaching that can, can draw someone into the message. And, I actually, and that's some of the feedback I get, especially from non-Christians. that will say, that was an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. That really made me think.
0: Uh, Keller makes the point in his preaching book that uh, he's served in, these, in pastoral ministry in two different um, regions of the United yep. States and that in in one region which was more rural that he had to pastor people well in order to be able to preach to them right and in New York City he had to preach well in order to mm. pastor them mm. would, would you say that you that's similar to your experience in Boston you have to you have to preach effectively and then that's what gains a hearing and a warrant to be able to care for people
2: I, I think so um, just because being in a context where you um, You know professionalism is valued sort of you know uh, a well uh, somebody who's well-spoken a well-thought argument um and so when you get up there, like for that new person and we we turn over 25 percent of the church every year people moving away Mm. and, and new people moving in so you're always trying to win sort of credibility with that new person who's going like do you know what you're talking about um and so that you have to think about how you're you're inviting them in. Um, but it does, I, I, would, I would say that's very much true. I wouldn't say that's an, you know, we're in a middle, upper, lower upper class context, um, in Brookline. Um, and so, uh, I, th- I don't know that that would necessarily be the case in some more per- or urban poor areas of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, that may very well be more about pastoring people Uh, before you're actually able to preach to them. But at least in the context of middle class, upper, lower, upper class, it's it's very true.
1: So knowing that you're turning over 25% of your congregation each year, what does it look like to pastor in that context? So obviously I'm assuming you had to move from, gosh, we're losing these people, that stinks, to... Wow, we get to send these people to the <laughs> yes. to the ends of the earth. Or am I just putting that in yeah, yeah. is that the holy way of looking at yeah. it, or do you really see it that oh, way? Yeah. No, I we've we've come to
2: see it that way. It was a, it was we were wrestling for a while because honestly, we just needed some people to put down roots. Um and I I remember saying this to the church, I said, In ten years, if Teresa and I are the only couple that's here right now that's here in ten years, City on the Hill's in trouble. Yeah. We need some people who put down roots. So I'm always kind of calling towards that. Um, but what I found is, even as I, in the first, especially the first few years trying to call people to consider putting down roots, um, I did find in my own heart a little resentment towards those who did move away. Um, and so I had to overcome that and begin to realize, like, no, God's given us these people. Some of them are either, some of them may be Christians when they arrive, but they're baby Christians or they've come from an unhealthy church. So our job then is to equip them, encourage them. Uh, and then hopefully send them out to be a, a part of another church plant somewhere, which is one of the most encouraging things we've probably had or heard is that most of our people end up in a church plant. It may not be a brand new one, but you know, four or five, six year old church plant somewhere, and they they plug in wanting to serve. So um, that's, that's the idea wonderful. of sending them has is definitely a better way to remind myself of what God's given us as an opportunity versus resenting the fact that we lose 25 percent every year yeah
0: yeah yeah speaking of church planting um and i'll make this my last question bland but um you and i recently met for the first time through a zoom call because you were teaching a a church planting class at southern right and i got to participate in that um and so you've been doing this class now for how long well,
2: that's the first time I taught that class. Um, I've been teaching a worldview class for Boyce. Um, there's a program, freshman program uh, at Boyce that's designed for, really for students to go to other schools after they finish their first year. Um, but it culminates with a uh, class called Christianity on the secular campus. And uh, Dan DeWitt was the guy who helped start this program. He and I are friends. And so for f- five years, I think this may will be fifth year. I've or sixth year I've taught this class. They bring them up to Boston, tour Harvard and MIT and some of the other schools. I usually, I connect them with somebody from our church so they can show them around and talk to them as a believer. And then I do some teaching with the students. Um, So I've done that for six years, but this is my first opportunity, which I was really excited about, the opportunity to teach church planting um, at the seminary that I graduated
0: from. So what are you hoping to accomplish um, in teaching a church planting class? What are the fundamentals that you're covering? What's, what's your burden for the group? Uh,
2: you know, I, I'm trying to calm I'm trying to bring together a lot of streams, um, but I, I really do focus on and emphasize calling and character um, initially. That those are the the two most important facets. Um, character for all ministers, but I think in particular church planting will test your character in some ways that an established church won't, um, you're, and so if you have a character flaw, it will come out in church planting, um, and can devastate, um, more so than I, I think an established church even. So we focus on character and calling and then, um, assessment and, um, pulling from, you know, acts 29 NAMS assessment. And then, uh, towards the end of the class, focus on what are the qualities, um, What are the qualities or best practices that that a healthy church planter needs to be able to know how to do and so we walk through everything from being able to communicate to non-christians to fundraising uh to leading a a staff Um, and then we call them to finish the class with just talking about some seasons of a church plant and i think being seven and a half years in for me being able to look back and see some of the seasons we've been through it's just being able to share a lot of things I wish I had heard or somebody had even told me before I planted.
0: Mm, excellent. Well, Jamin, thanks for joining us again on the podcast and helping me interview Bland and and Bland. Thank you so much for serving the body of Christ faithfully in pastoring, in training students, in serving the Red Sox, and uh, in joining our listeners today on the Am I Called podcast.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Dave, and uh, just appreciate you and your ministry, and Jamin as well, and just want to say, go socks!
0: <laughs> a little, <laughs> a little Sox personal. advertisement there. Oh, man. Hey, for our listeners, just a reminder that uh, this podcast is part of a suite of services that we have at call.com There's there's dozens of articles. There's over 50 different podcasts with folks like Trip Lee, Andy Crouch, Russ Moore, Paul Tr- I mean, there's just an a number of people there um, thanks for checking that stuff out and thanks for loving Jesus and thanks for being a part of the podcast today <laughs>